1: For more information,
0: visit OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Peter.
1: Hi, I'm John Teter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back. On my docket, I've been really busy. I've been cutting timber every week. Uh, been consulting here and there. My consulting season is about to pick up. And uh, I like consulting through the summer months and Early, you know, early uh, fall periods in the hunting season. Uh, I've been kind of changing it up, and it allows me to kind of work with my clients a little bit different. So I'm looking forward to this summer. I'm cutting timber throughout the summer, and I've got a bunch of big projects, some turnkey projects. So that's kind of my my world. Uh, one thing I want to mention to everyone: stay safe out there. If you're out there cutting timber, take your time. This isn't a rush or a sport. Cutting timber is probably one of the most dangerous things you could do and it's being knowledgeable and taking your time. Uh, I've been cutting with my partner and we've been trying to slow down and doing things real strategically and I, I'd suggest everyone you know I know time is precious and we we don't have a lot of time to be in the woods for some of you all and, and I would I would just say step back and think think through that so uh, just just a tip uh, and, and a word of advice for, from my end. All right so I'm excited because it's been a bit. Travis Harmon's back, and I don't know if you remember, but we uh, we talked about pollinators and pollinator habitat, and we we kind of built this whole kind of concept around the importance of it on the landscape. Travis, are you on the line?
0: Hey, I'm here, John. How you doing?
1: Good, man. Hey, quick, why don't you buzz your company? Let us know, you know, your business, and then we'll get into kind of some topics.
0: Sure. Sounds great. Um, so I'm Travis, I owner of Creative Habitat. I'm a more wildlife Habitat company based in northern Indiana. Uh, we're going into our sixth growing season. Um, it's really my my side gig. I have a full-time job. I'm a black belt at a medical device manufacturer. i um, 45 years old and, you know, been in that corporate grind for 20 plus years and was ready to prepare for partial retirement. So started Creative Habitat. I've always had a passion for growing things, wildlife, land management. I've uh, been doing it on my own personal property for over 15 years and so thought I'd give them a hand at trying to turn my passion into a business and something that maybe I can retire into. Uh, it's been a great experience so far. Um, do about 40% work around deer food plots, uh, turkey hunting plots, you know, uh, wildlife focus for hunters. And then the other sixty percent has really turned into uh, wildflowers and pollinator habitat. Uh, a lot of a lot of excitement around you know pollinators and the bee situation and uh, carbon and and green and the wildflower really fit into that. Gets uh, the outside the hunting public involved with wildlife habitat. So uh, it's been a really good experience and and it's gone over well. So we're hoping for another. Another good season. We've got some great projects this year. Lots of different variety. Um, some you pick flower operations, a wedding venue, um, personal people in their backyards that are looking to make pollinator habitat. Got some really cool food plot installations going on. So pretty excited for this year. As long as the the weather cooperates. And you know how that is, John. I mean, just the weather patterns so unpredictable. Uh, last year was really rough. Uh, we had a couple dry periods in June and then later in the fall. And I'm just hoping we slide by. It hasn't been a great spring so far. Uh, it's been real slow. We've been cold, wet, uh, had a warm spell, started to get things fired up, but we went right back to cold. We had two hard frosts in the last week. Um, I know farmers that have had uh, beans and corn in the ground uh, for over two weeks now, no germination, soil's just too, too cold yet. So Hoping it warms up soon. Uh, we're starting to do some spraying and, and preparing seed beds. Uh, just seeded some clover yesterday ahead of the rain that we had today. But that was the first seed that I've dropped this year. Um, it's getting kind of late. You know, projects get stacked up, but we're, we're anxious to get started.
1: So it's a lot of information and a lot of things that are going on in this, this weather pattern that, you know, I'm conscious of it. It's greened up earlier. You know, we would still be cutting clients right now. Um, I'm leaving in a couple of days to go cut uh, out of state, and then I'm back and i'm I'm actually cutting with another consultant the next week. And uh, I struggle with this because today I got home. I did a bunch of stuff. I got home, I went over my land, I, I cut all my my switchgrass. I cut it right to the ground. Uh, I'm not gonna burn it. You can't burn in New York State, but at least you you can't, you know without a permit. But there's some of the things that that I was trying to get done today that I usually have a little more time for, pruning trees, et cetera, that everything's just kind of blossomed out. At the same point, you brought up another topic. I think going into the summer, you're gonna have this erratic conditions. And these erratic conditions create a lot of dry spells. And one of the topics I brought up previously is how to, I think I've talked about this a little bit, but drought proofing your property, thinking about how you collect water in the landscape. It's not as critical typically in my areas, but some of the areas in the south and the Midwest, thinking a little bit more on how you actually populate water in the landscape. That's a really important topic and probably a topic um, we're not going to get into on this podcast, but to think about. And on my own property right now, I'm planning this season around drought proofing my property. And there's a lot of concepts around that of how you collect water, how do you distribute on the landscape. And uh, my partner, I've been talking a lot about that. Um, and then how to kind of just add value and uh, ensure that the plants that are on the landscape are doing well and uh, there's just a lot of principles around that so you're not getting into this and, and I'm talking about natural native plants in the landscape as well um, so there's there's some some theories around that some strategy that that I'm starting to employ and, and uh, you know share with clients etc and how to drop proof your property so new ideas new concepts you know think different things to think about. All right. So I want to get into some of your projects and when and where, because, you know, we've got our cool season grasses kind of just flourishing right now in my particular area. A lot of people are trying to spray those out. And the question comes into play. Well, I didn't do anything last season. I'm coming in to this year. What, what should I do? I want to have pollinators or wildflowers. And you're thinking time of your contingent. Like, what are my steps? What are the things that I should do to kind of get this
0: rolling? Yeah, definitely, if you're, you're coming in to the spring season with nothing prepared from last year. Um, if you started some pre-work last year, you're in a great situation, um, but it can still be done in the spring with a, even a late spring start. You know, when you're, when you're seeding, when you're talking wildflowers and, you know, native seed, it's, it's not like beans and corn. There's no rush to get it in the ground, especially when it's perennial seed. Uh, Because once that's established, you know, it's going to come back year after year. And annuals, yeah, annuals got a specific growing season. But there's nothing wrong with starting perennials in the middle of summer, even into the fall. So I would say if you're starting fresh this spring, take your time in preparing the seed bed. Don't get too anxious just because you see farmers in the field putting cash crops in. Um, I would suggest you're... You're, you're looking at a, a June when you're starting to seed in those types of situations. Um, the worst thing you can do is rush, getting your seed on, you know, work the soil, till it, do do what you see farmers doing. Um, that's not going to set you up for success. So you're better to be patient, especially when you're trying to establish perennials. Uh, now, chemicals definitely help move the process along. Um you know, if it's a fallow situation where you got a lot of weeds and grass, I want, I want to kill that off. And then I prefer to burn it if, if possible because um, it'll help burn up some of that loose seed, weed seeds that are sitting on top, clear, clear the surface. But if, if it's not that type of situation and you're, you're coming into a crop situation where it might have been beans prior or, or some kind of ag, uh, you can get to seeding much quicker. Uh, there's not as much seed bed preparation that needs done. And it's mostly because once you put your, your perennial native seeds on, you're at the mercy of mother nature and, and, and weeds, there's no chemical treatments for other broadleaf competition. And those, those, that first year is critical to getting a long lasting, you know, stand that they establish well that first year. Um, you talked about the cool season grasses, um, Right now, this time of year is big for for treating uh, older stands uh, where you get those cool season grasses creeping in. now we welcome warm season grasses, clump grasses that that won't crowd out the other flowers, the the broadleaf plants that we want. But those cool season grasses can be detrimental uh, later on. So I like to get in now and hit those with the grass selective herbicide, you know, here early in the spring. Um doing spot treatments, uh maybe bull thistle or some stuff coming in uh, and you can take care of it early. This is a great time to do a walkthrough, uh dressing, you know, small trees or saplings that might be coming into older plantings, hitting those cool season grasses and then spot treating, you know, early weeds. Uh that'll set you up for success later in the summer. And as, you know, habitat managers, you know, we're always working four to six months ahead of, ahead of where the fruits are going to come. Uh, you got to be getting started early and, and if you do that, it sets you up for that success It makes it a lot easier later on to maintain it. Um, so spring is a really really a critical period for older plantings and then if you're establishing something new, getting in there quick and trying to clear off the existing vegetation and the, the problematic things that are there <clears throat> if you're coming in behind fallow, and back to not putting your seed on too early, you want to let that ground rest after you've cleared it off. Um, there's going to be a lot of weed seeds in the se- in the soil. There's going to be a seed bank there. You need to give it time for that stuff to come on um, and then fry it back again. You're looking for as sterile as a seed bed as possible when you're applying them perennial seeds. And because wildflower seeds are very slow to germinate, you really don't get into serious germination a lot of times till out out past 20 days. Um, I've seen seed that I was certain laid there for a full season uh, before it germinated, you know, that next round. Sometimes seed needs cold stratification. And so you'll put some seed on, some will germinate, and some will lay till the next season. And so, you know, having that sterile seed bed that you're not going to be able to apply chemicals to later, you may be able to apply grass herbicides if you're, you know, not trying for a, a meadow type look uh, but you can get in there with a the grass herbicide and take care of that but at broadleafs they can be a real problem and um, Travis I, I, got th- a,
1: I got a question for you you just brought up a point of having a metal look and I think some people are thinking meadows and pollinator kind of blends would you prefer to have them clumped separately when you're doing your layout and design so they're kind of clump where you have your metal sections and then you have your I guess you know flowering type plants you have them segregated
0: um, definitely long term. I think they'll they'll turn into that. The first year, um, chances are it's going to be a lot of annuals. You're using the annuals as kind of a cover crop for your perennials that are establishing underneath. But then you get into year two and three, and that's really when the planting is going to start coming into its own and and showing what it's going to be. And your management technique for each plot. I'm a big advocate for diversity. On um, the same way with my food plots, I very rarely plant just one large uh, planting type. I, um, I like edge. Edge looks great in habitat. It looks great in backyards, lots of different varieties. And, and mixing it up a little bit, one section might be ma- managed for perennial flowers, that meadow look. Then you're, you're dropping in another section and replanting it every year with the annuals to really give you a strong color pop. And it's going to last much longer. Uh, a lot of your perennial plantings will peak out in July, you know, depending on the heat and the dryness of the summer. And I agree with you 100% that, you know, things just keep, seem to keep getting drier and drier. Um, but those plantings will dry out early. But your annual plantings will go well into frost, putting on good color all year. So it creates a better visual uh, when you're when you're doing a little bit of both. Um, there's definitely appropriate scenarios for each but I think the best plantings have a little bit of both and allow both the perennials and the annuals to, to shine.
1: I got two questions for you. The first question is, in these areas where you're doing these pollinator plantings, meadows what have you, um, are you taking soil samples and going through the same process you may do for food plots?
0: Uh, so that's interesting uh, that you bring that up. I'm, I'm not a big advocate for for soil samples um, you know I'm not growing a crash cash crop here now at times when we're doing you pick plantings of course you're trying to maximize blooms and there is you know there is a, a cash factor there and so I try to steer away from using any type of fertilizers on uh, wildflowers and, and those kind of plantings, uh, because a lot of times the annual weeds will benefit from them fertilizers more so than the flowers. And you're really, if we are applying, applying fertilizer, uh, phosphorus is a big one for blooms. Nitrogen produces a lot of green leafy growth. Um, that's not necessarily what we're going after for the flowers. We want, we want those big blooms, lots of color, um, So anyways, we try to steer away from that. Only in extreme cases, if you got really poor soil, it can definitely benefit from like a 19, 19, 19, Um, not a lot. But if your soils are decent, um, they're going to produce nice flowers. They're very resilient. They're drought resistant. Certain varieties, you know, I could plant the same mix in three different locations in the same time, you know, within a day of each other and they come out slightly different. Because when we're throwing the, the seed mixes on, we're putting you know up to 40 varieties of flowers in there, and certain ones are gonna appreciate that soil more than others, uh, the amount of sunlight, you know, it just there's a lot of variables that come into it. And so, you know, it'll come out different every time, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, put the seed on, a good healthy mix, no fertilizer and see what happens. And then if it's really struggling, then I might add some fertilizer as a you know a top dress uh, to give it a little boost. But most part, no, you you definitely want to avoid that. And that's one of the good things is not high cost. You're not dumping a bunch of fertilizer into it like you're growing corn or something like that, uh, which is a lot more costly.
1: So the so one one thing I'm going to add to it, and you brought up the phosphorus, and a lot of areas, at least non-ag areas, are usually phosphorus deficient. At least my experience has been that with a lot of clients that I've worked with, at least in the Northeast. One thing you could use as a slow release fertilizer is rock phosphate. So it's kind of a, a less soluble form and it takes a while to disperse. And so that has to be tilled in the ground at certain depths. And I would say two to three inches, depending on your, your root status or kind of what, what these plants are going to be in, 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 the, in the root uh rhizophia. So The thing I would say is if you're going to put fertilizer on any of these things, think about a slow release fertilizer that may be more advantageous to you. And then think about the other, you know, calcium or uh, boron deficiencies, because obviously that allows for that phosphorus to become available to the plant. So just some minor things, just because I I deal with plants a lot. So I'm thinking about that stuff all the time. You brought up a topic of burning. So and we're talking about we, we go into an area, you know, we're dealing with maybe fallow. You're resetting it essentially. And you're spraying herbicide and you're burning it and in the cases of burning it in order to get your seed in the ground are you disking your seed or are you just spreading your seed?
0: Um, I definitely try not to disturb the soil any more than we need to um, because you're just bringing up additional seed to the surface. Uh, Chances are it's seed that you don't want at the surface so Um, Try not to, you know, do disking if we don't need to. Uh, Weather conditions at seeding are important. I mean, you're looking for similar to establishing clover. A lot of the flower seeds, super small. um, So a lot of surface sowing, it can, it, it works well for, there's not a lot of effort to get the seed in, but it makes it very susceptible to drought conditions if it's on the surface because moisture dries up quick. If the sun comes out after you're after your moisture comes in, uh, dries the surface out real quick and, and the seed doesn't get started. So trying to time your seeding with, you know, a lengthy period of moisture that helps get that seed in the ground. Uh, there's there is certainly times that will work the top surface, uh, try to not to go any deeper in two or three inches. If it's a really hard pan and it's obvious that the seed isn't going to work into the soil, uh, we might do some work and try to stir it up some. Um, but if the soil is soft, uh, we let Mother Nature do its thing and, and help push that seed in the ground. Uh, patience is key, and then the right moisture.
1: Yeah, great, and thanks for getting into some of the details. I think it's important people understand the process. All right, let's go into selecting seed, because I think it's probably the next topic. We've talked a lot about kind of the basics and even a little more in-depth strategy, but let's let's select seed. Let's talk about some plants, things that you think about when you're kind of working. And and let's think about this in in the aspect of, Maybe we're building pollinator habitat, for an example. We want some, you know, visual, you know, kind of preferences. I'm thinking of clients that I've been working with, where they have this, you know, cabin. They want to have their wives and families up there, and they want to have these beautiful, lush gardens. But in concert to that, they want to have some food source for deer. And in concert to that, they they want to have it manageable. So, you know, selecting the right seeds, thinking kind of through that process, may be something, you know, that people want to hear about.
0: Absolutely, I, li- I like a, a good 50/50 mix. I think that's right on the money. Where you got 50% perennial, 50% annual. We Creative Habitat we have four mixes uh, that we sell, and they cover about 80% of our you know installations. There's a short mix, a couple taller mixes, and then a meadow mix that has the warm season grasses. Um, a good 50/50 mix. That way you can get good color the first year uh off the annuals while the perennials are establishing they'll kick in on the second and third year <laughs> you know I have been planting a lot of different flowers a lot of different locations the wildlife love it deer love to feed on that green growth especially in the fall and in the early spring right now they're hammering the wildflower plots because uh, the perennials have an established root system so they're putting on some green growth a lot faster uh, than the other stuff that's coming on so they're really pounding it right now Uh, the turkeys really love it later when they have the poults there's a lot of insect activity a lot of uh, moths and things they can feed on so it really pulls in a lot lot of wildlife in um, throughout the summer. I think if you put down a good mix, one of our mixes as an example, and you're throwing 40 varieties of flowers at it, you're going to have a decent variety stick. And <clears throat> really it's, it's seasonal. So you look at a planting once you come back six weeks later and it looks like a totally different planting because the flowers go through different bloom periods certain flowers are going to bloom earlier and then boom be gone and then another variety is going to come on so a good mix with a lot of variety is key to having an extended color Um, if you have one flower that over dominates the others Um, You really want to make sure when you're seeding, you're not seeding too thick because one flower will dominate and then you'll get one super massive bloom and then it's over. You know, the show stops and and really the good plantings can put on a good show for, you know, three, four months. The perennials, different colors, a white bloom, a yellow with purple. And it's just constantly changing as the season rolls on. And then your annuals really start kicking in midsummer because uh, you've seeded those in the spring and producing a lot of color. <clears throat> so I, I would just recommend a lot of diversity in the seed. I see a lot of mixes that, you know, are five, six varieties. Um, I, the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm not a big stickler for native versus non-native. I uh, certainly don't want to introduce invasives, and there's some seeds out there that I, I would certainly avoid. Um, Chinese forget-me-nots, one that comes to mind uh, because it, it has a really nice blue flower, but it produces a very small burr, um, and it's a super aggressive grower. Uh, I've had problems with it. Catch fly would be another one. Um, in the right situations, uh, they can get pretty aggressive, so try to avoid some of those. <clears throat> but I, I, like I said, I'm not a big stickler, so I really like zinnias produce a ton of color cosmos same way they're not really native uh, to indiana they're annuals and so you don't see a lot of reseeding i've never seen any kind of issue with those sunflowers are always great and you're like i said before you're primarily using these as a cover crop for the perennials that are underneath and, and establishing and as long as you don't get your seed too thick that first year Uh, There's a really strong chance you've got a lot of perennials that are going to establish because just like when you're doing plots or any other cover crop, if your cover crop's too thick, it leaves no room for the perennials to establish. And so, you know, making sure you don't overseed, you're better to come in underseeded. You can always add more seed. But it's very difficult to pull seed off. So I definitely like to seed on the shy side and then fill in later. I learned over the years, don't put all your seed down at once. Hold a little bit back for problem areas. And I'll tell you, John, I'm, I'm not afraid to burn a whole planting down because it doesn't look right at germination. I think you got to stay flexible. And I would rather delay my planting bloom by a couple of weeks by frying it back and then reseeding the whole thing because you're really trying to set yourself up for years of enjoyment i mean four or five six years of fantastic blooms and delaying it another month because you had a bad germination or you had a bunch of problematic weeds come in with your seed it's well worth delaying it reseeding for it to come out right so i think it's important to stay flexible on that um but as long as you you know time it with the weather have a good seed mix. I, 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 Very rarely have I ever seen a failure. The only times we've really had issues, deer will wipe a planting out. Uh, in urban areas, they can be a problem. They're a problem in my backyard now. I live out in the sticks, <clears throat> but because of managing the property for so many years, we've got a ton of deer, um, and I have trouble growing a nice flower p- patch in my backyard because they will come in and wipe them out. so that, um, this
1: topic has come up with some of my clients because of the the, the number of deer, the, you know the, the density of deer. And what would be your recommendation in those scenarios? because this, is, this becomes kind of a controversial issue because you want to have that opportunity, but at the same point, you're giving the deer too much leverage right on you, so you've you, you got to now think about your selection. We've talked about exclusion opportunities where we're excluding, excluding clumps that are most preferential, to the deers so of the plants that they prefer, but then, you know, you've got fencing, you know, and then they're like, well, what type of fencing, you know, the, the wire netted fencing kind of looks the best, at least you can see through it, at least the easiest, but what, what are your recommendations in, in those scenarios?
0: So I do like, uh, um, mm-hmm. as a, as, as a deer repellent. If you apply it every few weeks, it definitely helps keep them off of it. I've had some success with it on sunflowers. Um, I'm using it this year in some locations, trying to keep deer off of it. Um, you know, the flowers, I think, I don't think the flowers are super attractive, like a nice clover plot, soybeans, you know, they're not that high value, but when the deer are so thick, they start feeding on lower value plants and then the flowers are right there next on the list. And so they can receive a lot of pressure. Um, the best I can tell you is, you know, there could be situations where you're, you're not going to get the type of planting that you might see in pictures. Um, sometimes it can help prolong the bloom when you have heavy browsing uh, because the plants are constantly in regrowth and it'll delay it. And so when a planting that hasn't been browsed heavily is already done and past, the plantings that have been browsed ha- heavily are still blooming um, because it's almost like you mowed them back. And so there, I guess there is some positives, but I've experienced it on my property. You want to have all kinds of deer. You, you do things on your property. After 15 years, you know, the last five years we've had a lot of deer, a lot. And I think you have to be ahead of the curve when they start increasing in numbers. If you're not in front of that curve, it's very difficult to bring it down yeah. Uh, without, yeah, without damaging, I want to say the, the hunting on your property, if you're trying to kill mature bucks and, and those kind of things. But um, I've really noticed here in the last three to four years, a lot more pressure on my flower plantings. We just got too many deer and you can see it in the winter, uh, when they start herding up after the hunting season. And we really need to manage that. And I think we would have been in a better position if we would have reacted quicker and got ahead of that curve.
1: Yeah. That two, three year problem starts to creep up on you. And so these opportunities that we're talking about, you diminish those opportunities. So I'm going to put my two cents into this really quick. So in order to facilitate what I was just suggesting, other than, you know, we talked about, you know, either chemical application or fertilizer application or caging, whatever the case may be, it's diversity. And one of the things you could start with is spraying out those grasses. We started out with the cool seasons and giving an opportunity for kind of those annual forbs to kind of come to light. It's also having... And even in this case right now, those young sprouting seedlings become a food source. So it's having that diversified landscape and thinking about the food value in concert with these plantings, particularly during that early time of year. One strategy that we just employed with the client is we're cutting all season long. So we're getting past this early leaf out period. And then once this leaf period kind of ends, we're going to start cutting more timber on this client. So we're going to cut it's a large property. We're going to continue to cut all season long, providing value food sources, you know, increasing the moisture level because of the treetops, adding diversity. You know, those are areas where you can burn, you can spray them out, what have you. And then thinking about that in concert with this kind of beautified look and feel. Another concept that Travis, I'm sure you've thought about this is having kind of adjacent, more preferred plants that are distracting. And it's like, where you have that kind of candy garden, and then you have this available garden for, for the deer. And it's giving giving them some diversification. When am make candy more preferential for humans or visual aesthetics, what have you, versus kind of their preferences. So kind of think about that in concert when you're doing your layout and design. Just want to add my two cents into this. You talked about maintenance earlier. So we're getting out of the annual end of the perennial, right? We're going in from year one you know, you talked about sunflowers kind of establishing, you know, kind of those different annual plants and we're getting in kind of the perennials and some are biannuals, like, you know, some of the plants that I'm thinking about, but getting into those perennials, what's the maintenance aspect of this? Because I think a lot of people are thinking work. So I, I want to know how you handle that.
0: No, definitely not a lot of maintenance um, on an established planning. And I think the the key to low maintenance, the, the second year and after is having a, a good first year. Uh, The first year is really critical to setting it up for success. Again, I I mentioned earlier on uh, some older plantings, a lot of three-year plantings this year, we were going in and spraying for cool season grasses. And I think some of what happened last season will impact what the planning does this season Uh, drought conditions last year will affect things this year when you're talking about perennial plantings. and so you know each year is different i think a lot of its observation we're going to come into the planning right after green up and start observing how it's coming along what's coming in with it um, addressing spot spraying problem weeds You know, on a half acre, which is probably our average size, you know, plot that we're installing, um, backyards and those kind of things. On a half acre, we're talking maybe 10 or 15 minutes of walking around. That's really my expectation is that if I did the first year right, the second year, very limited maintenance. The third year, a lot of these plants don't reach full maturity until year three. Um, So I've seen a second year planning come out looking totally different in year three when a certain variety really came into its own and started to mature. So this is really a long game you're playing here. Um, The first year being the most critical. The second year, early maintenance in the spring, addressing, you know, problem weeds that have come in. Uh, There might even be small spots that I'll kill off completely. Uh, it could be a 10-foot you know, ten foot by 10-foot area that Canadian thistle or something is infested. I have no issue with frying that back, throwing a handful of seed on it, and, and kick-starting it. Because if you let that go, it's like an infection, and eventually it's going to take over the whole thing. So if you address it early, um, you're way ahead of the game there. Moving into the later season, then it's a matter of enjoying it. Uh, might do a little snip snip here or there or or a spot spray if, if there's a problem, but for the most part, you're enjoying it up till the fall where you decide to set it back. I'm not an advocate for, for burning to manage a wildflower stand. Um, I've found that, you know, it's great for managing for grasses and specifically if I'm trying to get a nice thick stand of grasses, I will burn. I think that's the best way to manage it, but for flowers, I prefer just a mow, and I'm looking to disperse the seed, and that's one of the great things about these flower plantings is they're constantly putting new seed back in the ground every year. Um, Yeah, birds are, are taking off with some of it, but you know, they're really reseeding themselves, producing a ton of seed to spread into the surrounding area as well. Um, so we've definitely seen flowers popping up in areas where we know the seed came from the planting that we put in. So that it's real satisfying uh, to see that kind of spreading all those good things. Um, but we're mowing those down after the after the seed heads have set. Usually the last bloom we're getting into that uh, black-eyed Susan. you know, the asters in the fall Mm -hmm. uh there'll be purple coneflower hanging on late and you know we do honeybees as well and so we don't mind some goldenrod and some stuff like that for a later bloom Uh, but we're really looking to set the seed back into the soil there are plantings we'll leave stand and then mow them in late winter or very early spring Uh, if we're trying to leave some wild you know wildlife cover uh, we'll leave the planting stand. There's nothing wrong with that. And then mowing them down right before green up and then just, you know, letting it come on. <clears throat> you, you did mention about, you know, kind of really cream of the crop plantings for your deer and then some less desirable, but add the eye candy factor. And I think that's where the wildflowers really shine. Um, you know, I'm going to be using them this year. I <clears throat> And I think it's important to stay flexible uh, with your plan, <clears throat> I've been a property owner for 15 years. Small property, a lot of the properties we work on are smaller properties, 40 acres or less. There's a lot of influence from neighboring properties on a 40 acre piece. And you know, you're know you not in control of what your neighbors are doing. And over the years, things are gonna change. And this year is a great example for me where uh, my food plots are located on the edge of my property because that's where I have tillable ground. In 15 years, I've never had anybody hunting on that side in Agfield. field. But this year, I got a new neighbor. guy shows up, and he sets up right on the property line along my food plots. And, you know, that's really going to change the game for me and my hunting strategy. But one of the first things I'm going to do is take a portion of those food plots and transfer those over into wildflowers. Uh, it's going to offer forbs and browse and cover and pollinator activity. It's going to look great. It's not going to be like a food plot sitting in front of that guy. And so I'm going to utilize the wildflowers and some native grasses to fill that void, create a little bit of buffer between where he's going to be and where my prime food plots are going to be. Uh, it's going to add value. It's going to be low maintenance. Um, so I think that's a great example where you can utilize uh, wildflowers and native plantings to add value um, and be a part of your plan. And then use those cream crops, soybeans, clover, those kind of plantings for your target locations where you're really trying to influence the movement of the deer on your place.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. And something almost as a buffer, and it creates kind of that opportunity to kind of buffer you from your neighbor. And I I like that. The other thing I want to mention is, you know, one thing to think about, and we're talking about flowering plants. And most flowering plants, the way that they, you know, produce seed or produce fruits – are through animals, and you know we're talking in this case about you know various natural plants or native plants. Um, some are non-native. We we kind of hit on those in a little bit. You know, I think of uh, one of the. Uh, I'm thinking about a bunch of plants that I've experienced because I've I've had the opportunity to build some of these blends with clients. But I'm I'm happy you offer seed and that, I think people should kind of look at your seed blends. I think that'd be helpful. So go online and look at you know Travis's company, his, his seed blends. I think that'll be really cool. The other piece I was thinking about, you know, the percentage of benefit that you're getting. So if most of these flowering plants, a large percentage of them are propagated based on animals rather than wind, like conifers are you know, propagated by wind, a lot of these flowering plants by animals. So it's having as many animals on the landscape. And so it kind of correlates to the topic. I mean, a little bit broad, but bees, for example, you know, they're propagating our crops and a huge percentage of the croplands that, that we're dealing with, you know, probably 30 or 40% of the crops that, that we employ either for deer or our own, you know, edible sources are propagated by, you know, pollinating type insects and and uh, beetles, wasps, moths, etc. So it's thinking a little bit more holistically and the other thing I want to add to this is I'm not necessarily a proponent for, you know, including non-native plants across the landscape, but I do suggest that in some instances. Um, and are there are benefits to butterflies and bees. And I, I recommend that people look into that more by just sticking with this, you know, the mantra that native is the best. Native isn't always the best. And I've, I've worked with a couple uh, ecologists and entomologists that have, Uh, even stated that we think so deeply about native plants being kind of the end state and all suggestion because you know that's what we hear and that's not always the case so be open-minded to that and having a mantra that the native is right isn't always correct and I'm not going to get any specifics I don't want to be controversial today because I'm a little chill right now but I would suggest keep an open mind about that. So just, just to add to the discussion, the last piece of it is is thinking about kind of the plants that are host plants for butterflies and thinking about, you know, when the caterpillars are young, you know, what they're kind of eating, right? Uh, we typically think of milkweeds as a good example, but the type of species that they're eating that they're, you know, they're preferring and, and observing what's going on in the landscape. I think Travis was talking earlier about just paying attention to what's going on and thinking that the, there's natural tendencies of certain species to prefer certain plants and it's having kind of that awareness factor you could read more about this about you know what plants relate to what insects etc but thinking a little bit more holistically about that and then obviously look at the consumptive values for our deer and selecting plants that either, you know, deer prefer or they don't and and kind of thinking about that when you're doing your seed selection. So just at a high level, I'd step back and you can investigate each seed. Um, I do the same thing with tree species, right, or coniferous trees, selecting trees that meet my demand. So I figured we'd just kind of add that into the conversation. All right, Travis, anything else you want to add to the conversation or you think would be valuable for people to consider kind of going into this time of year or anything throughout the summer, whether it's food plots or otherwise?
0: Well, John, one thing is uh, we've been, you know, in business six years. One thing we hear time after time is from customers, how much they enjoy having the flowers right in the backyard, watching the butterflies, uh, the monarch mar- migration in the fall. I mean, people just go crazy over it. And, They talk about how relaxing it is to just walk through, look at all the diversity, the color, the new blooms. And, you know, I think what we're doing is kind of outside the box. People, I don't think you understand until you see it or you experience it. And a lot of our customer base are return customers. Once they've experienced it the first year, having that relaxing spot in their yard that they can go to and look at the colors and, the, you know, the pollinator activity, Th- they want that and, and they have a spec to keep track of it or, or do more. And so I would really encourage guys, this is something that I believe is, is new. Um, there's a lot of, I've mowed a lot of grass for a lot of years and it's because it's what I knew. But since <clears throat> discovering wildflowers years ago, I've transferred more and more of my lawn and other people's lawns to small pollinator habitats. And it, it's just, it's excellent. And, I I don't know how it's not more popular or you don't see it more, but I believe you will in the future. Once people see technology has changed, uh, seed mixes, the ability chemicals, um, you know, it's a lot of new technology has enabled us to be able to do what we're doing today. And I think when people take advantage of it and they see it and experience it, they just, they love it. And I think, your listeners. And it's something they should consider for their lawn. And, you know, everybody's got a little spot, uh, an out-of-the-way spot to throw some flowers down and and watch what happens. And, and I think they would really like it. So I encourage them to check it out.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, I, I'm, you know, this motivates me. It should motivate any landowner to think a little bit differently, think a little more holistically. And I just brought up the point earlier about, you know, kind of the birds, the bees, the bats, the moths, anything that's going to pollinate, and thinking about the seed food source and how that creates diversity in the landscape—that's the whole principle behind this. Um, it's that simple. And thinking more holistically in that sense, rather than just be focused on deer, I kind of wish I had somebody like you in my area also to consult with me, but to provide me recommendations on what what's the best tact to go about if you're going to establish this on your landscape. But there's a ton of information in here if you listen to this again and i suggest people listen to this several times and uh, also check out you know your seed blends and varieties these are not the cheapest things on the world right um, but you can also you know harvest your own seed right there's a lot of opportunities and once it's established as you suggested you know that that will propagate themselves assuming you know that the seed is is uh, pollinated etc and obviously you know these flowering plants you know the, the nectar is the attraction for these you know bees and wasps etc so you know, it becomes, you know, that attractant that that pulls in, you know, these insects from all over the place. So, like you said earlier, enjoying that and and observing it, I think is is really important. And uh, that kind of echoes with me when I'm thinking about the benefit on the landscape. All right. uh, I think that was great. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to spend, you know, on this podcast. And uh, I'm excited to have you back on this summer.
0: Hey, man, I appreciate you having me to your listenership. Uh, last time I was on, I got some messages from some guys and words of encouragement and really uh, appreciate that. And, you know, you said it, that it's expensive seed and every situation is different when you're trying to establish the best planning possible. So we're, we're happy to help people out and check us out on Instagram. That's where we're doing uh, most of our active stuff. I've uh, been a little slow posting lately because it's, it's so busy right now. Um, with spring but uh, looking forward to some great shows this summer and uh, really just just looking forward to sharing with people
1: yeah man i think thanks for taking the time with me today and we'll, we'll talk soon
0: all right dude we'll right. talk to you later
1: see you man bye
0: maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes for
1: more information on how john teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt check out whitetail Landscapes dot com.